0: The final of this sermon is, Jesus Heals a Gentile, from Mark 7, 24-37. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh said to him, Epitha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded him, commanded commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Steve. We're looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're coming up to the halfway point. Um, Gospel of Mark, one of the four gospels that begin the New Testament, is a summary of Jesus' ministry, his life, his ministry, what he said, how he behaved. And we've seen uh, Jesus teach. We've seen him do miracles. We've seen him gather his disciples together and begin to form what will become the foundation of the church. Last week we saw how Jesus Jesus begins to get noticed by the elites of Israel. He's in the north, uh, around the Sea of Galilee, but the Pharisees and the teachers come up because he's gathering these huge crowds. The the peasant people are leaving their towns and villages and coming out to see him, and they want to know what he's all about. But their attitude is confrontational. They challenge him on his ideas about holiness and ritual purity and cleanliness they're used to thinking in terms of their personal holiness how they keep themselves clean how they handle food pots and pans and Jesus says to them you're nullifying the gospel you're obsessed with exterior things but it is what comes out of the human heart what you believe that is truly important. And now we see Jesus expanding. He leaves Israel. He goes to the area of Tyree. And he begins to take his gospel and his miracles and his teaching to those outside of Israel. So let's have a look at that. I'm going to focus on this first part, this story of uh, the Gentile woman uh, and her daughter. Because... There's a lot going on in this passage. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Left that place, so Jesus was on the shores of the Galilee when the um, Pharisees and the teachers of the law came up to confront him. There were crowds there. And now he leaves he goes north. He leaves Israel. Tyre is on the coast. It's a, um, a center of commerce. It dominated the whole um, region, the whole vicinity, economically. But it's a foreign place. Jesus is leaving Israel. He's going to a foreign pagan city filled with Gentiles. And notice he doesn't want anyone to know. Um, this is a theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus wasn't just this uh, Ottoman who just went from place to place doing thing after thing. He constantly retreats. He constantly goes to the desert or to the wilderness. He constantly leaves the cities and he leaves people. And he renews himself, as well as teaching his disciples, but he renews himself through prayer. Jesus prayed for hours sometimes days. His ministry was a ministry based on prayer and faith. It depended not on his particular skills or talents. He constantly depended on God throughout his ministry. He could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. Notice, this is a woman who would have been considered unclean uh, in Israel. And she's got a daughter who's got an impure spirit, that is, an unclean spirit, an unholy spirit. Two strikes against her. The woman was Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Notice the emphasis here. This is not an accident. It's not just Jesus running into a person. Mark makes it very explicit that she's Greek. She is not Jewish. She is not part of Israel. She is a Gentile. She is from a foreign place, a foreign culture, a pagan culture. And so from the the perspective of an Orthodox faithful Jew, she's actually got three strikes against her. She's a woman, a respectable uh, Jewish man, would not talk to a woman who was not part of his family. She was a Gentile. Gentiles, non-Jews, were considered unclean. You couldn't touch them, you couldn't eat with them, you couldn't enter their homes without becoming unclean. And her daughter has, uh, explicitly it says here, an unclean spirit, an unholy spirit. So ceremonially, ritually, spiritually, ethnically, This woman is unclean, scary, frightening other. She's a foreigner. And so how does Jesus respond? First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So this woman is desperate. She's got a sick daughter, a spiritually sick daughter. She goes to find a man she does, not go, she does not know and she goes to a strange house out of desperation and what does she find? She finds a man calling her a dog. Jesus seems to embody all the superiority, all the cruel condescension of Israel's religious elite, the Pharisees that he's just met back in Israel. There's no hint of the gospel here. There's no generosity of spirit. He, as, he is as cold and superior and distant as anybody else in Israel would be meeting a Gentile in these situations. And this passage has always upset people. It's always upset and embarrassed Christians particularly because it is such a challenge to our ideas, our sentimental ideas, about Jesus, I think most people think of Jesus meek and mild, wandering around, Israel is in, in its Birkenstocks, always stopping to smell the roses, always smiling, always being generous, always being sweet and kind. And so there have been various attempts to get around this passage, to avoid what it seems to be saying. Oftentimes it's just glossed over. The word dog is a diminutive. It could be translated puppy. But, you know, he's still calling her a dog. And Israel considered Gentiles dogs because dogs were seen as unclean. You know, they ate refuse. And so this was a slur used by religious uh, Jews against non Jews, against Gentiles. Some people have suggested that Jesus is just tired. You know, he went north out of Israel on a sort of vacation. He needed a break. This rude woman is interrupting his vacation, uh, and he's a little testy and snappy because of that, you know, like somebody coming up to a pastor on vacation and asking them to preach. Um, Well, make of that what you will. There is a more liberal uh, interpretation. Um, CBS did a two-part miniseries on Jesus, and they actually portrayed this uh, encounter and they portrayed it as an opportunity for Jesus to learn that he had to reach beyond Israel to uh, speak to and minister to Gentiles. A TV critic said of this, I don't know if this critic was a Christian, a TV critic said of this, the uh, CBS two-part miniseries, it is a soft gospel Delivered with all the authority of a child winging a book report. A scene that should have quit while it was ahead involves a Syrophoenician woman pleading for Jesus to heal her daughter. After honoring her faith with a miracle, he informs his disciples, this woman has taught me that my message is for the Gentiles as well. If I can learn, so can you. Did the omniscient co-creator of the universe, really learn about his calling from us? Maybe. A more conservative interpretation, more theologically conservative interpretation, suggests that Jesus is speaking ironically. F.F. Bruce said, what if there was a twinkle in his eye as he spoke? The written record can preserve the spoken words It cannot convey the tone of voice in which they were said. Maybe the tone of voice encouraged the woman in perseverance. Maybe some of those interpretations resonate with you. Maybe they impress you. Uh, It doesn't impress me very much. I think there's more going on in this passage. Lord, she replied, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That's quite a remarkable thing for her to say. Her child is suffering. She is desperate. She could have felt insulted and rejected by this superior man. She could have got angry. She could have screamed and shouted. She could have collapsed. She could have run away in anguish or despair. But instead, we get this remarkable composed an insightful response to what Jesus has said. Lord, she replied. Lord is the Greek word or kurios from which we get the English word lord or master. It is a sign of respect. She is respecting him. She is not angry with him. She is honoring him as a lord, as a master here, as someone who has authority. Children's crumbs, the children, refers to Israel, the people of Israel. In Hosea, we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The children's crumbs, you know, crumbs, she is saying that Jesus called himself the bread of heaven. Just as God fed the Israelites in the desert on their journey to the promised land, Jesus, the bread of heaven, feeds his people I find that an extraordinary response that she makes three things she seems to understand exactly what Jesus' image refers to she understands that Jesus is the bread of life and that through that life God is feeding Israel God came to save Israel through the Messiah Jesus Christ. Such a clear understanding of who Jesus is and such an understanding of his image, this image of the bread being fed to the children. That's extraordinary. There's nobody else that I'm aware of in the New Testament that understands this until Paul shows up. It's going to take the disciples three years of intense training and Um, teaching by Jesus before they even get close to this idea. Two, she understands the order of salvation. The Bible says that the Messiah, Jesus, came first for the Jews and then through the Jews would be a blessing for the peoples of the world, to the Gentiles. She understands that right here in her reply. Even Peter, the rock on whom Christ builds the church, will take a lot of teaching about this. In fact, he is confronted by Peter because he refuses to recognize and eat with Jewish, uh, with uh, Christ, Gentile Christians. Peter still maintains the separation between Jew and Gentile, even when he begins the ministry of the church. She knows it, right here. And third, and I think this is most remarkable, she links the table and the bread, and Jesus. This comes through even more clearly when we look at this, the account of this encounter uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, she is recorded as saying, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Lord and master is the same word, kurios. She is saying that she wants to be fed by the crumbs, Jesus, the bread that come from the Lord's table. She's not only responding to what Jesus is saying in his image of the bread for the children of Israel. She is showing that she understands the imagery. More than that, she's essentially summing up Christian theology, succinctly uh, understanding of what the Lord's table is. God's people being fed by the body of Christ from the table, the Lord's table. And Jesus is impressed. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This unnamed Gentile woman seems to have not only extraordinary insight, but extraordinary faith in Jesus' ability to heal her daughter. I don't think this is an accident. Does this sound like a vacationing Jesus being annoyed at being interrupted on his vacation? This is an orchestrated encounter. It was Jesus who took his disciples out of Israel, out of the Holy Land, into the unholy land of the Gentiles, the foreign pagans. It is he who meets with this unholy woman whose daughter has an unholy spirit. And it is he that heals her in front of his disciples. We learn that his disciples are right there. Jesus' rude superiority, I would argue, is a parable just as he confronted the Pharisees and challenged their obsession with exterior things rather than faith in the heart, Jesus is showing in his behavior towards this woman the superiority of the Pharisees and the law. And her faith in him breaks through that barrier. She sees through it and recognizes that this is the Lord, recognizes that this is the source of grace and truth. The whole point of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, and I would argue the whole point of Jesus going to this region of Tyree, is to show that the gospel, the good news about God, is no longer bound up in a narrow group of people who set up barriers between themselves and other people and the world. The gospel breaks through barriers just as Jesus is breaking through here. Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Remember that, faith. I'm going to come back to that. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ... Have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. What can we learn from that, by the way? Well, maybe this is controversial, but I would argue, and it seems to me, that right now we are living in a time where people are putting up barriers to each other. I've been in America 30 years now and I have never seen America so angry with itself and people in America angry with each other. And it seems like everybody is blaming somebody else. Everybody is trying to separate themselves from other people. As Christians, we should remember, we are all one. Everybody needs to be saved, not by politics, not by money, not by anything else in the world except Jesus. And before him, we are all equal, equal in need. And the gospel gives us the resource to have relationship with people we disagree with. What did this woman bring? All she brought was her need. Her need to have her daughter saved, her need for Jesus to act in love and grace. And her faith in his willingness to do that is what was the connection here. She humbled herself. She fell fell at his feet. She called him Lord. And she put her faith in him. And he responded. That is the gospel. All of us, everyone... Every human being, doesn't matter who they are or where they're from, it doesn't matter what sex they are or what skin color they are, what nationality or ethnic group, all need Jesus. Nobody in front of Jesus is better than anybody else. There is a humility in the gospel. We cannot look at anybody else and say, they're the bad people and we're the good people. I'm the good person and you don't deserve anything. You should suffer. We all need to be saved. That's the humility of the gospel. And that means there is no institution, there is no group of people, there is no organization, there is no nationality or country, ethnic group, people group, language group that doesn't need the gospel. And what happens when you do humble yourself before God? He lifts you up. He removes the impure spirit. He restores you. The humility of the gospel says to each human heart, you are not special. You need as much as anybody else. But the gospel simultaneously says, and now you are a child of God. There is nobody in the world who is better than you. A radical humanity and humility a radical elevation and significance. That's why Christ is our foundation. He humbles us and he lifts us up simultaneously and the gospel can do that with anyone. And that makes it a resource in times of strife, times of anger and bitterness. It makes it the only thing that can break down the barriers between people. Next time you get angry with something you read or see on TV, somebody that you meet, some situation that you're aware of, and the bile begins to rise, remember the gospel. You are not special and wonderful. You are just as bad, if not worse, than the other person. Humble yourself. But also remember you are a child of of God. No matter what the other person says, no matter how much they condemn you or insult you or humiliate you, God thinks you're beautiful. You can stand in any company against any opposition because you're a child of God. The gospel is the antidote to anger, the antidote to barriers and hatred, The anger to conflict, the antidote to conflict, because it restores and elevates and renews. A final thing. As I say, I find it remarkable that she mentions the Lord's table. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a moment. How should we think about this? What does this woman teach us? And by the way, you know, why is she named? You know, maybe there were a bunch of misogynists back then. They didn't like women. Maybe nobody talked to her afterwards. But I would say she's not an ordinary woman. She knows way more than the the disciples did. She has a supernatural insight and an extraordinary faith. What if she really is us? That she is showing us how really we need to come to the table. In humility and need and hunger and faith. In that sense, she is everyone. She is the teacher in this parable. How should we think about what is happening here? Well, I mentioned last week that you cannot understand the table, the idea of holiness, the idea of clean and unclean, the idea of purity the need for Jesus, unless you step back and look at the big picture of scripture. Look at what the Bible teaches. What does it teach us? What is the big picture? It is the fact that God is our creator. Infinite, omnipotent, perfect, the creator of all things. And we, are his creatures, that is, we are creations. We didn't create ourselves, and we are finite, we are limited, we are fragile. Every moment of our lives depends on God. He sustains everything. God himself is perfect, self-existent, independent, and free from any constraint. And I stress the fact that this creator-creature distinction We should always remember it is what creates a gulf between the divine and that which is not divine, the material world. It is heaven and earth. It is spiritual versus material. It's a gulf that we should always bear bear in mind. But this gulf was made broader. Heaven and earth, the spiritual and the divine, God and man, their relationship not only has this gulf this fundamental difference in who they are, but the Bible says in Genesis that the relationship that they had across that gulf, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, that that relationship was ruptured. Holiness literally means set apart. It is a summary word for all the ways that God is not like us. He is separate, distinct. And sin literally means missing the mark, falling short of God's perfections, not being like God in holiness and goodness and love and all the other ways. It is the difference between light and dark. The Bible repeatedly loves the imagery God is light. The light shines in the darkness. God is light. And we are darkness. And the problem with that is that it's not that God wants to punish or hurt us. The problem is that when light shows up, darkness disappears. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of the light. It just ceases to be. And so it's like the relationship between a snowman and a bonfire. It's not going to work. A snowman who wants to get close to the fire is going to cease to be. That's our situation. Trying to have a relationship with God is like the snowman trying to be friends with a bonfire. It's hopeless. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous image if you just think about it. There's no practical, rational, or sensible reason for it to work. And that is exactly our situation with God. Not only are we completely unlike; he is holy and we are not, but our relationship is fundamentally ruptured. There is now no connection between us and God. Nothing. Except one. And this really is the miracle. God continues to love us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. No connection between what is holy and divine, God, and what is unholy and separate and sinful, everything in this world. And so Jesus, his whole ministry, is a journey across that divide. It's what he was teaching to the Pharisees. All the barriers that they want to put up between themselves and other people, between what they see as their holiness and the unholiness and uncleanness of other people, other Gentiles, are nothing compared to the barrier between God and man, heaven and earth, divine and material. And so Jesus is taking his disciples on a journey here. This whole encounter is a parable. He's deliberately taken his disciples on a journey to a foreign land. He crosses the national barrier between Israel and Syria. He's crossing the religious and ethnic barrier between Jew and Gentile. He's crossing the spiritual barrier between male and female. He's crossing the spiritual barrier as he encounters and drives out this impure spirit. The whole point of this encounter, this passage, is Jesus breaking barriers. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What gave this woman such courage, this unnamed woman? Courage and knowledge. It was her desperation. She had no other option. She had a need. She was hungry for someone to heal her daughter. And she had faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Through faith, she saw through this cold, superior condescension this pharisaical façade as Jesus played the part of a teacher of the law. And through faith, she could see underneath that façade. She recognized Jesus filled with grace and love. She saw under the icy façade of the snowman that the fire was there, that the fire had joined her and stood right in front of her. And that's what the table is all about. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The bread is Jesus. If you look at this table without faith, it's just a table. But what do you see through faith? You see Christ. His bread, the bread is his body. The cup is his blood. More than that, you recognize that Christ is God's love crossing the divide. Love that you can't see and can't know about has no power. But when you see the embodiment of love, Jesus becoming one of us, emptying himself of all his glory and his power, becoming a small little babe in a manger, making himself accessible and vulnerable, when in faith, you see that love in him, this table, through faith, becomes a connection. The relationship between God and man is reestablished. Faith is what couples us back to God. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have. How much faith did she have? She was desperate. She would have done anything. Faith is smaller as mustard seed as long as the one you put your faith in is faithful in return. We're going to come to this table. Think of this woman. She was hungry. She was desperate. And she had faith that the one who stood before her could solve her problem, could feed her, could save her daughter. Do you have that faith? Is right here. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's not just bread and wine. This is the body and blood of Christ, shed for you and shed for me, so that we could reestablish, reconnect with God, so that we could become part of the family, so that we could be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story.